Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. This is our eighth week in our 11-week series called Two Friends and One Hero. And we're looking at the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Uh, and, and with looking at their ministry, what does their ministry teach us about God? And how do they, these two prophets, how do they lead us to Christ? Which Jesus himself says all the prophets uh, do. Uh, our family, we love to take uh, driving trips. We love short trips and, and long trips together. and um, Particularly the cross-country trips because they can really lead to some adventures. You know, if you've driven cross-country, you, you probably realize this. We've, we've uh, run out of gas in a desert in Utah, some 30 miles from the nearest gas station with no cell service. That was, uh, that was interesting. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not recommending it, but uh, we did it. Uh, we've eaten at roadside diners in Oklahoma that you would be wise to avoid. Uh, and then just last year, last summer, my two middle kids and I, we made the trip uh, to Southern California and somehow ended up uh, under the freeway in an aqueduct in New Mexico uh, because my 21-year-old son assured me that he knew a shortcut from Alabama to California. Um, we didn't get there any sooner, I promise you, but it did provide uh, for some uh, histrionics. Um, but, you know, the, the, those things, they're, they're great adventures. And one of the things we love about trips, even if it's a short trip, is it does provide time where you're in the car together and you're kind of forced to have conversations. Some of those conversations end up to be actually very meaningful conversations. Now, there are occasions, I must admit, when I'm driving or I kind of get lost in thought and I kind of separate myself from the conversation. And when I do, I will be you know, reprimanded by my kids or they'll ask me, Dad, are you listening? And if I say yes, then I'll be quizzed after that. Well, what was the last thing that was said? Uh, I'll get that quite a bit, and um, I, I can get distracted, and I can wander off uh, into my own world. And that's one thing if you're on a driving trip, but it's another if you can sort of, if you get distracted, lose focus, and wander off aimlessly in life for seasons, for years, for decades. As a pastor, I hear people say all the time, man, I really wish I would have lived my 20s differently. Or I wish I would have lived my 30s differently or my 50s differently or whatever it is. And sometimes when people get to the end of their lives, in those twilight years, they say, I look back at the last 15, 20 years, and I just don't know what I've done. I don't feel like I've done anything productive at all. Uh, there's a longing inside the human heart to live with a sense of purpose and meaning. And there's actually a yearning in the human heart to be able to answer those questions, those so-called life's ultimate questions. Why am I here? What did God put me here to do? What is the purpose and meaning in my life? Now, thankfully for us, the Bible actually answers those questions. The Bible says that we were created to glorify and enjoy God. That's why we were put here on the earth. Now, we glorify God by obeying Him, by trusting in Him, by receiving His good gifts with gratitude. Uh, by, by worshiping Him, by showing compassion for those who are hurting. There's a number of ways that we glorify God. Uh, we can do that really in the way that we live our lives, of course. And we enjoy God, that other aspect of why we were created, we enjoy God as we learn to revel in who God is and who we are to Him. But in order to do that, of course, we have to know God. We have to know Him, not just about Him, but we have to know Him. We have to be in a relationship with Him. How do we know God? Well, God 
by his grace and mercy, has revealed himself to us, not as we might imagine in a series of propositional statements, but instead in a collection of stories, small stories about seemingly random things that actually in a mysterious way fit into a larger story which tells us about God, his salvation, and all of which points us to Jesus Christ, his son. This morning, we're, we're going to be looking at three Again, seemingly random stories that don't seem to be connected to anything. And the challenge when we read these stories is, of course, not only to say, to find out what do they reveal to us about God, but also how do these stories fit in the big story. So we'll look at three very brief stories. Uh, Two of those will be from 2 Kings chapter 4, and then we're going to jump over to 2 Kings 6 for the third story. So uh, let me read uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one, but you can, uh, for now, you can follow along with the words behind me. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, here reads the word of the Lord. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets uh, cried to Elijah, Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind you, yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. So in the days of Elisha, uh, widows were totally helpless. There was no uh, 401k they could cash out if their husband died. There was no savings account. They had no prominence, no status in society, and really no earning power. And so they were definitely among the most helpless in society. When a woman's husband died, she would very quickly, if no one else took her in, if she had no surviving family to take her in, she would become destitute uh, almost immediately. Now, there were a few laws and special provisions that had been set up to, to protect uh, the neglect of widows, but, but if you've been around this series very long, you know that uh, the people of Israel are in a very dark time spiritually where the Word of God, the laws of God are being ignored. And so the fact that there were some laws that were meant to take care of or provide for widows, that provided almost no comfort because those, were, those laws were ignored. Well, in the passage that I just read, one of the sons of the prophets that we've seen, it's kind of Elisha's uh, discipleship group. There are 100 plus people there. One of those uh, has died, leaving behind a wife and her two sons. And so now this woman has a debt to pay. It could be a debt that she incurred trying to, uh, again, make arrangements for the, the burial of her husband's uh, dead body. could be a debt that she incurred uh, in other ways. Um, but she has these creditors who are hounding her, and they're threatening to seize her son, sons and then sell them as slaves if she doesn't come up with the money. I mean, can you imagine, as a parent, can you even imagine the thought of having your kids taken from you uh, because you don't have enough money to pay a debt. So she begs Elisha for help, and he's, he's warm and receptive. He, 
He says, what do you have in your house? She says, nothing but a, a jar of oil. And so Elisha has her borrow empty jars from her neighbors, um, and she starts and has her pour oil from her existing container into these empty jars, and incredibly, she, she doesn't run out. She just keeps the, the jar filled with oil, is not depleted until every jar that she's borrowed is full. There's oil in it. And Elisha tells her to sell the jars of oil and pay off her debts. Now, remember I mentioned that we have these little stories, and, and they're all connected to a bigger story, and I'll show you how in just a minute. But, but what do we learn from this particular story about God? And I think it has something to do with God's compassion, and more specifically, God's care for the least of these. In other words, we're not told really anything about this woman. We know she's a widow. We're not given her name. We're not given her circumstances, what led to her debt, nothing like that. Um, but her troubles are not lost on God. To the contrary, he cares deeply about her. In fact, he cares about her even though no one else does. Here's our first point this morning if you're taking notes. The God of the Bible is constantly at work caring for his people. Even the unnamed and, quote, minor players in his story. I put minor players in quotation marks because there really are no minor players in God's story. Uh, Janine and I just finished watching uh, a couple nights ago this television documentary called The Dropout. Uh, have you seen this? It's, uh, it's a fascinating story. It's about Elizabeth Holmes who dropped out of Stanford and started up a tech company in Silicon Valley. And, and uh, she, she gets all these people to support her. And she purportedly comes up with this medical technology that will allow her to, to you know, this machine to determine, to discern any number of illnesses and ailments and diseases with a single drop of blood. Um, and so she, she builds this company up into a $9 billion company with all the, the big players contributing, the, the Sam Waltons and you know, Bill Gates and so on. And so she has this, this company, $9 billion company, but the thing is, it's all a fraud. None of it's true. There is no machine that actually can take a single drop of blood and diagnose uh, and, and find out all these diseases. So ultimately, well, actually, I won't ruin it for you, but it, it, it's a fascinating story, and, and it really conjures up all kinds of emotions it did in me, from outrage to disgust to anger, and, and even uh, certainly brought it me face-to-face -face with my own greed. So it brings up all kinds of emotions, but it also can, could lead you to believe by watching this story that especially if you watch Elizabeth Holmes, this very charismatic woman, it could lead you to believe if you're not part of a startup that has a goal of changing the world, then you're just wasting your time. You live a meaningless existence if you're not part of an organization that's going to change the world. It's easy to conclude that. In 2014, a theologian and professor, Michael Horton, wrote a book called Ordinary, in which he debunks the idea that God is only interested in or uses those who lead startups aimed at changing the world, those who solve the world's greatest problems or commit to a radical lifestyle. Instead, he shows that God delights in just regular, ordinary people who live quiet, uh, you know, seemingly unimpressive lives that are bent on glorifying Him serving those around them, and caring for the lost. And here's what Horton writes in that book. He says, radical, epic, revolutionary, transformative, alternative, innovative. Most of us have heard expressions like these so often they become background noise. Ordinary has to be 
one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person that lives in in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? We have to leave our mark. We have to leave a legacy. We have to make a difference. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained, he says. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. It's the newer ver- one of the newer versions of salvation by works. So we watch these documentaries on these Wunderkinds, which is just a German word that refers to those who changed the world in their 20s, and we read the memoirs of these uh, famous people, and, we, and we, we hear the stories of the influencers who have you know, 10 million followers and all that, and we start to think, we can easily think, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not changing the world. I've not invented anything. I don't have all of these followers. And we can start to believe that God is really on the side of the movers and the shakers. But here this miracle by Elisha shows us that God, the God of the Bible cares about ordinary people, regular people, those who are not necessarily going to change the world. In fact, it's typically the ordinary people that call out to him in their desperation like this widow did. If you're a student or a stay-at-home mom or a retiree or you're working in a trade or you're working in a job that you think, I don't know, this is not really doing anything. I'm not contributing to anything. The truth is, you don't have to be amazing at everything. You don't have to change the world. You don't have to invent some new product. God's not calling us to change the world. He's calling us to be faithful to the little things that he's called us to do. And he cares deeply about ordinary people like you and me. Now look at this next miracle. Uh, Skip over to uh, verse 38. There's a large section in there that's one big story we'll, we'll look at next week. But verses 38 uh, through 44. So Elisha came again to Gilgal where, when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it, uh, from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in this pot. And they could not, but they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour, and he threw it into a pot and said, Pour some out for the men, and they made it. Or they, uh, they made it. They may eat, rather. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, uh, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus said the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. So actually two miracles in that section that I just read. Uh, there's a famine in the land of Gilgal, and you may recall that Gilgal was the, the entry point into the land when the, when the people of Israel entered the promised land. And the disciples of Elisha, some hundred plus of them, they get hungry. And Elisha says to his servant, make a large pot of stew for the men. Well, there's this overzealous guy, you know, we all have friends like this. There's an overzealous guy, he, go, he just starts picking out everything. 
picking things off the ground, picking things off the vine, picking things off the tree, and he throws it all into a pot of stew. He stirs it up, and then he serves it to uh, the men. Well, when the men started eating it, they cry out in verse 40, O man of God, there is death in this pot. Now, it's an interesting Hebrew phrase there. We don't know exactly what it means, but whatever that means, right, it's not good. If you fix somebody and they say that, it's not good. Um, about 10 years ago, there was a sweet couple in our church that I served. It was a different church, and uh, they invited us over for dinner. They'd been married 71 years. Now, I, never, I had never heard of anyone in my whole life that had been married that long. Um, they were in their early 90s, and they'd reached this incredible milestone, and they wanted us to come over and celebrate with them. And so, of course, we gladly accepted the invitation, didn't ask them what they would serve us. thought that might be kind of rude, and so we said, sure, we'd love, love to come over. Um, they were the kindest couple on the planet, and we had a sweet time with them. But whatever they served us that night, it wasn't edible. Um, there was definitely death in what they served us. Um, and so, now, fortunately, we had two young teenagers, uh, 13 and 15, who had just finished playing basketball all day, so they didn't care. So anytime our host would turn around, we would sort of slide our plates. We just kind of did a big circular motion there and slid our plates in front of our boys, and they, you know, they just ate whatever. Um, it was, we really enjoyed our time with them. I, I think I'm becoming persuaded that, that the older we get, the more we believe, that the longer we have to cook everything. You know, because, of course, you don't want salmonella, right? And so they, they had cooked this uh, Salisbury steak so long that we needed a jackhammer to kind of get to the middle of it. Um, but we had a great time with him. But I, as, as, I, as I ate that, I, I thought to myself, I'm going to die if I try to eat another bite of this. There are those occasions where you think, and maybe it may not kill you, but you think, if I take another bite of this, I'm not going to survive. Well, whatever this uh, top chef wannabe put in the stew in Elijah's story um, it was at least potentially fatal, or it made them feel like they were going to die. So Elisha, he brings some flour, he pours it into the pot, and all of a sudden, it's good. Everything is good. Tastes fine, no harm done. And while they're eating that restored stew, a man from another town busts in, seeking some guidance from Elisha, and he brings with him 20 loaves of bread and some ears of grain. Now, this would have been enough for about 15 to 20 people tops, 15 to 20 hungry men. But remember, there were more than 100. And so there's a real dilemma there. And because they're in the middle of a famine, you know, a lot of this partly because of the curse of God on their own idolatry as a nation, because they're in the middle of a famine, these men actually needed that food in order to survive to continue doing what they were doing. So Elisha tells his servant to feed the men what they have. And the servant says, well, you don't understand. Like, this is not going to be enough food. This is not going to be close to enough food. Elisha repeats himself, says, give it to the men. The Lord said it will be enough. And they eat all they can eat. And there's still a lot of food left over. Now, it sounds like another miracle story, doesn't it? That you may recall uh, from the New Testament where there was a large group of people eating from just a few resources, a few loaves and fish, and they had a lot left over. Uh, more on that in a minute. But what are, we supposedly to, what are we supposed to learn from these two seemingly random stories? Well, the audience, the original audience for First and Second Kings, this combined volume, would have been Israel in the 6th century B.C. while they were enslaved to Babylon. 
And they were, and of course, while this is going on, they're subjected to harsh treatment, they're enslaved, they're treat, treated with much cruelty. And so they absolutely must have wondered, where is God in all this? Has God deserted us? Has God disappeared? And here we have these stories that they would be reading, these stories of God's provision, the way that God would care for them in these uh, seemingly random ways, but in ways that could only be attributed to God. And so they read these stories. Here they are enslaved, they're, being, they're, they're working 14-hour days, they're being treated brutally. They read these stories, and, they, and when they think, they think, oh, that was an only God moment. That was an only God moment. Have you ever had an only God moment? You know, you, uh, maybe you look out on the sunset, and, and, and just such a beautiful uh, panoramic display, and you, you say, only God could create something like that. Only God has the imagination and the power to do that. Or maybe, maybe the circumstances in your life, the, the, the timing, and everything just lines up so beautifully and so perfectly, and, and it just all kind of came together at the last second. You say, only God could have done that. Or maybe you you were in a relationship, maybe in a marriage, and it was just characterized by so much tension and animosity and, and vitriol, and then over time, through repentance and restoration, you come to love each other more than you ever have, more than you ever imagined, and you say, only God could do that. And I've had people in my office years ago, I remember a situation, a couple, they just hated each other. They sat on the very ends of my couch, the couch, the married couple. They didn't want to look at each other, talk to each other. And over time, God fostered with them a deep sense of love and contrition and brokenness. And all they could say at the end of that was, only God. Only God could do that. Maybe you're, you've been in a situation where you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, or maybe you got a diagnosis and, and it just looked like it was a, you were just a completely hopeless case for you, and God brought about a miracle. There are those only God moments that remind us that God hasn't gone anywhere. He is providentially caring for His own. Well, these miracles that we just read were meant to do that for Israel. To bring to mind God's faithfulness, His power, and His presence. Here's our second point this morning. Those seemingly random, only God moments in our lives are gifts meant to deepen our faith in the presence and power of our Redeemer. You know, we, it's hard to watch the news, isn't it, without becoming a little bit distraught. You know, you watch the news and you see what's going on in our world and um, there's so many things in life, obviously, we can't control. So many things in our life we, we can't explain. Um, we don't know how to make sense of. Um, but in the midst of the inexplicable, God keeps showing His children that He's there for them. He cares about them, and He is able to help them. Now, of course, the skeptic will always find a reason uh, as the, the Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky said, the, the skeptic will always find a reason to disbelieve. And so, yeah, you can look at things, and, and things can come together in the timing and the circumstances that I just said. And, of course, you can conclude something else happened. But if we look at the events in our life, and we look at what we go through, and the, the way that things happen with eyes of faith, we see that this loving God is reminding us of His presence and power. He is revealing Himself to us when we most need it. This morning, you may feel like God has abandoned you, or maybe you're in one of those relationships I talked about, and you think, I, there's, there's no hope. I mean, that's a great story you told, but there's no hope for me. Or maybe you feel like 
you, when you pray, you just don't ever really sense that God is anywhere near you, that he's just totally distant from you. And maybe, maybe you think he just doesn't care about you anymore. Well, if you look more carefully, if you're willing to look with the eyes of faith, you'll see God hasn't gone anywhere. These seemingly random events are orchestrated by a sovereign God who loves you and cares about you and is working all things for your good and his glory. Now, let's look at, uh, flip over to 2 Kings uh, 6, a couple chapters over. Another one of these short stories, uh, verses 1 through 7. Now, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for, it to dwell, for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. So, you know, Elisha has this group that follows him everywhere. They're, they're called the sons of the prophets. They're, it's 100 plus people that are kind of, again, his discipleship group. And, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of outgrowing their, you know, their, their house, their confines. And so um, they're getting a little stir crazy. So they ask Elisha if they can go down and build a new wooden house by the River Jordan. Every man will play a part in the construction of this new place. Well, Elisha gives them his blessing, but they say, no, you got to come with us. Please come with us. So he, he obliges. Well, when the work gets underway, one of the men has an accident where his axe head, which is iron, falls off the axe and into the Jordan River. Well, what do you think would happen to an iron axe head? It's just going to descend right to the bottom of the uh, river. Um, all the way down to the riverbed. Now, it doesn't seem like a huge deal, does it, right? I mean, even though there was no Lowe's or Home Depot that they could run to to replace it, even so we say, what's the big deal, right? I mean, it's an accent. Grab one from somebody else. Here's why it was a big deal. It was a borrowed accent, borrowed axe. And if you've read the Old Testament, particularly Exodus, the, the 20s chapters, you see that there's a, there's a, there's a high premium placed on returning items you borrow in their condition, their original condition. So if you borrowed something from someone and you lost it or it was damaged or it was stolen, then you would be subjected to shame. You would have to provide for and endure the shame of not having taken good care of what uh, you borrowed. Um, so you would, again, you would be subjected to to shame. So the guy who dropped the axe head, he freaks out over this. He says, no, this is a borrowed axe. i got to get this thing back. Well, he wasn't going to jump in the river to find it because that would have been productive. With all the rocks at the riverbed, it would have been a wasted uh, effort. But Elisha helps him out. He throws a stick into the river, and, and then up comes the iron axe head floating to the surface, just sitting there. So the man grabs it, and he has the axe back. So Old Testament scholar Gary Miller writes, in this insignificant miracle that spares one man's shame and substantial expense, God makes it clear that he still has not abandoned his people. But still, it's kind of a random story, isn't it? I mean, what, what does that have to do 
with anything? What does that have to do with, with the, the big story? Well, here's how this gets really fascinating. And uh, this is the kind of stuff that as a biblical theologian I can really nerd out on, and I'll try not to. But this is really incredible stuff. As you look over the whole Bible, again, this one big story, we see that Elijah, okay, not Elisha, Elijah was a forerunner to John the Baptist. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus actually refers to John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come. So Elijah is a forerunner to John the Baptist, and we see that. You may remember Elijah, he wore the camel skin shirt and the leather belt and uh, had the gruff temperament. He was calling people to repentance. All of that, again, paving the way for John the Baptist. Well, Elisha was actually a forerunner to Jesus. Elisha was blessed with the Spirit on the other side of the Jordan. Elisha healed the sick, cleansed lepers, defied gravity before Jesus did any of those things. Elisha's, get this, Elisha's ministry extended and dwarfed Elijah's ministry. Elisha performed twice as many miracles. Um, he, he was known as a miracle worker. Well, Jesus, his ministry actually extended and dwarfed um, uh, John the Baptist's ministry. So the miracles of Elisha, the miracles of Elisha as the forerunner to Jesus point to and set the stage for the greater reality, which is the power and effects of Jesus' miracles as the Son of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, there's no way that this story, these stories that you just read, have anything to do with Jesus. Maybe you feel the same way that this man did who approached me uh, many years ago after a sermon I preached from the Proverbs where I made the point that the friend who sticks closer than a brother is actually pointing to Jesus. And this man came up to me in a, very, very in a huff and said, I'm going to give you a mulligan on that sermon. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, a mulligan is, I said, I know what a mulligan is. Um, what do you, why do I need one? He goes, there's no way when you're preaching the Proverbs, you should be preaching Jesus. And I said, really, but didn't Jesus himself say in Luke 24, that all the law, the prophets, and the ketavim, which is a Hebrew word that means the Proverbs, the Psalms, the writings, didn't Jesus himself say that all of those are about him? And uh, I said, I, I think when we look at the Proverbs, just like when we look at the rest of the Old Testament, we ought to do so with an aim to finding Jesus. I never saw that guy again, um, but I appreciated his mulligan that he gave me. Um, the stories in the Old Testament... The stories that I just read are meant to cause us to think about Jesus, His suffering, and His finished work. But you say, how so? And that's a great question. Well, think about what these miracles that I just read this morning were about. Let me say it differently. Think about what, these obst what obstacles these miracles spared God's people from. Debt, death, and shame. There's a woman, she loses her husband, she has no way to pay, and this miracle spares her from debt. There's a group of men eating a stew that they believe is going to kill them, and this miracle spares them from death. A man loses an axe head in the river, which will cause him great shame in the community, and this miracle spares him of shame. Debt, death, and shame. Now, what does the New Testament tell us that Jesus came? What was the ultimate reason Jesus came? 
to set us free from the debt of slavery to sin, Luke 4, to give life to the dead, John 10, and to to cover our shame by enduring the cross in our stead, Hebrews 2. Debt, death, and shame. When we sin, we incur a moral debt against God. So we've been created to, to obey God, to honor Him, to glorify Him and enjoy Him. But when we disobey Him, we incur against God a moral debt. Not a financial debt, a moral debt. And it's actually such a great debt, we have no hope of ever repaying it. Not only that, when we do sin against God, we bring upon ourselves by our disobedience spiritual death. The Scriptures say, The wages of sin is death. Our rebellion against God results in eternal death, eternal separation from God. And how do we feel the weight of that separation? We feel it in the form of shame. Every time we spurn God's authority, every time we reject God's ways, choosing our own way instead, we feel shame. And then what do we do? We keep asking ourselves, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep sinning in this way? I've already confessed to it and repented of it a million times. I keep going back and doing it again. I keep going back and looking at it again. I keep saying it again. Shame is the belief that for some reason, perhaps a personal trauma or something that's been done to us, but but typically something we've done, we are inherently undeserving of love and too bad to be accepted. Debt, death, and shame. We've seen in these three, three miracles this morning all of those things being dealt with. And those miracles of Elisha, which point us to the miracles and ministry of Jesus, are meant to demonstrate that Jesus, the greater prophet, has the power to relieve our debt, to reverse the curse of death, and to cover our shame. Here's our final point this morning. The miracles of Elisha. Anticipate and help us interpret the debt-satisfying, death-reversing, and shame-covering miracles of Jesus. That's why they're in there. I mean, yeah, they, tell, they teach us something about God that we, we, we dare not ignore. But they're always pointing forward. They're always pointing forward to the Christ and His miracles and His ministry. As long as we live apart from God's design, as long as we live in ways that are against God's design, we will always deal with shame. Now, when we feel shame, what do we need? We have a deep human need to have someone else assure us that we're okay, that we're not really bad, that we're not bad people, that we haven't really failed that terribly, that we've not done anything wrong. And one way that we go after that assurance is to coax it from the people around us, either by fishing for compliments or justifying our actions to them or or even begging for affirmation, sometimes in desperate ways, maybe throwing ourselves on someone physically or or isolating ourselves when when we're corrected. We need that assurance from other people so that we will no longer believe that we're really bad. Well, another way that a person may try to get rid of shame is by manipulating others into affirming them, into bolstering their pride. For example, for an entire month, the month of June, so-called Pride Month, 
those living in direct rebellion against God, insist on others celebrating their lifestyle. It's their way of seeking affirmation, assuaging their guilt, and putting off the shame that haunts them. But it never works. It never works. One month is not enough. A handful of compliments won't suffice. A series of parades won't cut it. They never effectively deal with shame. But demanding affirmation from others is not the only way to deal with shame, praise God. The only effective way is through confession, repentance, and forgiveness. The only effective way of dealing with shame is by laying those sins at the foot of the cross where Jesus has taken the guilt, the stain, and the shame of every one of our sins by dying the death we deserve and taking on in body and spirit our guilt and our shame. The antidote to shame is a brokenness that drives us to Jesus and his cross work. There's nothing else that'll work. There's nothing else that'll help. On the cross, in three words, it is finished. Jesus announces that every sin, the secret ones, the despicable ones, the so-called respectable ones, every single one of our sins was fully and completely dealt with by our Savior, who bore our shame, who took our sins and nailed them to, to the cross, who lived a perfectly obedient life so that by faith we could have credited to us the obedience of our Savior. So that if you put your faith in Jesus, you can put your sins in any one of those three categories, the secret, the despicable, the the so-called respectable, or any other one. If you put your faith in Jesus, God no longer sees you as a sinner in that way. He no longer sees your sin. They were put on Jesus in the cross, never to be held against you again. The miracles of Elisha aren't, about, aren't just about showing God's power, although certainly they do that. They point us to the miracles of another, the one whose perfect life, gruesome death, and resurrection secured for us freedom from debt, freedom from death, and freedom from shame. And not only that, he guaranteed for us a brand new life with new meaning, new power, a new purpose, and a new hope for the future. May God give us the grace to receive it. Let's pray.